0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie.
1: You'll turn with me in your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 28. They came to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching They were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Here ends the reading of the word inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This passage is traditionally labeled something like, the man with the unclean spirit, or Jesus casts out the demon at Capernaum. Either way, quite a disturbance in the worship service. Was there some confusion at what was happening? Did the congregation cut their eyes at the new parents in the back pew? I mean, babies always get the blame for noise in church. The crying baby, the babbling baby, even the sleeping baby. But the preacher, she knows it's the adults sitting around the baby who are most disruptive. I've always been confused by concerns about the noise level of children in worship. I've never had a child's cell phone ring in the middle of a prayer. And then again during the sermon. I've never had a baby lean on the back wall against the light switch, turning the lights off and on and off and on while I'm trying to preach. But adults, y'all, so many sermon examples. (laughs) The Gospel of Mark moves pretty quickly. We are just in the first chapter. You remember from last week that Jesus has recently picked up a few disciples They immediately go to Capernaum, where the first thing Jesus does is go to church. His mama must have been so proud. By verse 25, and that's 25 verses into the first chapter, Jesus performs an exorcism. Well, that escalated quickly. But before the exorcism, Jesus preaches. We aren't given the sermon manuscript. The sermon was not recorded, not uploaded into Vimeo, not available for download as a podcast. It would be great to know what Jesus said. After all, according to the text, it must have been really good. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So it could have been the length If the sermon was based on Jesus' first sermon, it was probably brief. Congregations like that. Jesus' first sermon was fewer than 20 words. We read it last week. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. A sermon in 20 words. Don't get any ideas. We don't know how long this second sermon went, but we know that Jesus' delivery was on point. Delivery is important. No one likes a weary preacher. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. But we'll have to come back to this because this is when the interruption happens. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. The man made a ruckus, or the story says the spirit within him made a ruckus. The demon-possessed man is loud and disruptive until Jesus commands the spirit to come out of him. For some, demon possession is real, part of the unseen forces of good versus evil, And Jesus' response has become a model for what to do when possession is suspected. Prayer, exorcism, a little more prayer, often while rejecting medication or other therapy, this approach rarely, if ever, results in anything positive for the person in care or those who care about them. It is often theorized that in ancient times, any struggle with mental health or unexplained illness was diagnosed as demon possession. Perhaps this man was a person with schizophrenia or undiagnosed with bipolar disorder. Or maybe he had a really high fever. It's possible. We know so much more about brain health these days and what influences behavior that we are not sure what to think, when Mark says that Jesus expels an unclean spirit from a person, and for all science has taught us, Fred Craddock points out that not believing in demons has hardly eradicated evil in our world. Besides, possession is not quite as foreign an event as we pretend, for most of us have had firsthand experience with it, I have been, on occasion, possessed by anger that has led me to do and say things I regret. Most of us have been possessed by jealousy or envy that has made us stingy and ungrateful. Some of the most shocking cases of possession happen when people are behind the wheel of a car. It's shocking how quickly a middle-aged, never-been-to-the-gym, sits-at-a-desk-all-day regular guy can instantly turn into the Hulk after they've been cut off in traffic. Someone doesn't use their blinker or takes too long to make a turn, and all of the sudden we're speculating on the character of that person's mother which we would never do in any other circumstance, except that we have been possessed by the power of driving a car. And we should be careful, too, about diagnosing the man in the biblical text with mental illness, especially if it is just because we do not believe in demon possession. Mental illness gets blamed for all sorts of things, most notably, after there's been a mass shooting. But studies show that the convenient cries of mental illness after mass shootings are factually wrong and stigmatize people living with mental illness. People with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence, including violence committed by police. Mental illness has become an increasingly popular way to explain away unthinkable violence, in part because more often than not, The shooters are white. We emphasize the mental health of white mass shooters because these men, and they are 98% of the time men, they look like us. So for white people, it seems as if there is nothing to give them away except for their awkwardness and isolation. In other words, they could be anyone And that is too terrifying an idea to entertain. Of course, this is not what happens when the shooter is a person of color. If the shooter is black or brown, the blame is laid at the feet of larger cultures, politics, or ideologies. Shooters who are white are almost never referred to as terrorists, even when tragedies like the Las Vegas shooting meet the textbook definition of terrorism and it's because the shooter was white. We comfort ourselves by saying, oh, he must have been crazy. But if the shooter is a person of color, the assumption is not mental illness, but race or religion that's to blame. Dr. Jonathan Metzl explained in the Washington Post how blaming non-white cultures when guns are involved is a tradition with deep roots in American history. In the 1950s and 1960s, a number of high-profile black activists and political leaders advocated for gun rights for African Americans, arguing the Second Amendment applied to all citizens and that black communities required firearms for self-defense because police offered little protection. Without a single shot fired, police, government officials, and mainstream society labeled these leaders and their larger movements as insane. The FBI diagnosed Malcolm X with pre-psychotic paranoid schizophrenia after he posed with a gun and advocated armed black self-reliance. The FBI then went on to promote the notion that armed black Americans under Malcolm X's direction planned to overthrow the government. The FBI also diagnosed Robert Williams, the head of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of the NAACP as schizophrenic armed and dangerous, after he advocated for black armed self-defense. The Bureau then used these characterizations characterizations as an excuse to limit gun rights and take away guns from black populations across the South. Distorted images of Huey Newton and other Black Panther leaders were also used to foment fears in white America after the Panthers advocated for armed self-defense. And all of that contributed to a groundswell of support for the Gun Control Act of 1968. None of what I just said is advocacy for more guns. Most of these leaders died by the very thing they pushed for. But this is a history white America knows little of. One might call it a new teaching. These and other black American leaders were far from mentally ill, but the reflexive associations between armed people of color and mental illness allowed white America to lay blame at the feet of black culture or black activist politics, not individuals or lone disordered brains. What a difference today, where it is automatically assumed that white shooters are isolated, deranged individuals, unconnected to white culture or white masculinity. There has been little to no examination of white entitlement or toxic masculinity and its relationship to violence. The media is only beginning to ask the right questions. After the Washington Navy Yard shootings in 2013, amid a national argument over whether to blame gun control or mental illness NPR asked why are most rampage shooters men the story pointed out that men tend to develop negative attributions of blame that are external while women direct anger inwardly but the the question didn't go deeper into exploring the role of how masculinity teaches men what they are supposed to expect and how they are supposed to cope absent the crazed lone wolf narrative, we might begin to discuss white culture and toxic masculinity and how they contribute to isolation and violence. And what better place to start that conversation than at church, a new teaching, perhaps, on how kindness and compassion make a man. Imagine with me, if you will, on that Sabbath so long ago, when Jesus preached about what the people called a new teaching, that it was about combating privilege and upsetting the status quo, which is also known as the good news. I mean, it's good news to the poor and the marginalized, not necessarily good news to the privileged, which could be why it doesn't get preached in too many white churches these days. Wouldn't want to offend anyone. But Jesus does not worry about taking it easy on church people. So he preaches the good news, and they were astounded at his teaching. But it also upset a few of them. Just then there was a man possessed by privilege who cried out. And Jesus, seeing that there was a person underneath all that privilege, called the privilege out of him it was unclean the man survived you know without that privilege it wasn't who he was anyway it was a cover a security blanket there was a human being under all that privilege finally recognizable in religious language we call what happened repentance and salvation jesus sermon that's so inspired. It's really too bad we don't have the text. But maybe that's because Mark knew that we would figure it out just by watching Jesus work, pulling in the marginalized, touching those previously considered untouchable. Faith as action, not orthodoxy. This new teaching, I, I think it was something like, God is for everyone. So if God is for everyone, then there goes toxic masculinity that suffocates and isolates our sons and turns our boys towards violence. If God is for everyone, then there goes separate but equal. If God is for everyone, then black lives matter. If God is for everyone, then dreamers stay, and so do their families. If God is for everyone, there goes merit-based immigration. There goes complementarianism, the idea that women and men have dictated roles at home and work and church. There goes the denial of equal rights to our LGBTQ siblings. There goes our deep desire to create God in our own image. If God is for everyone, then there goes the church. There goes the church, off to bring the good news to the poor, to proclaim release from the privilege that possesses us, to stand against injustice and call the powerful to account. If God is for everyone, there goes the church, off to do everything we can to prove God is for everyone. If God is for everyone, well, here we go.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.